Good to be with you again, sharing God's word. We missed you uh, last week, but we had some good fellowship time with uh, another church. Good to see uh, God working in other churches and uh, and the fellowship that we can actually share with them as well. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to Philippians, the Epistle to the Philippians, chapter two. And we'll look at four verses today. Verse, sorry, look at five verses today, from verse twelve to sixteen. Philippians chapter two, verse twelve to sixteen. Let's read. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life, that I might rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither laboured in vain. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads and pray before God's word this morning. Father, we thank you once again for your precious word. We thank you that you have um, uh, preserved it for us, Lord, that we can look into it and trust every word and syllable in it. Father, we pray that you would uh, use your word now to, uh, to affect every heart, that your spirit would be working, that our hearts would indeed be open to your truth, and that we would leave this place uh, the wiser for having been here. Father, we celebrate wonderful things you've done for us and even now as we look at your word we celebrate what we have what you've been what you've given to us father that um, they would exalt jesus today in his name we pray amen we had a uh, young adults fellowship on friday night and i asked those young adults who are expected to be uh, uh, a lot more uh, up to date with what's happening in uh, in our regular society. I asked them a question about who knew about what, what had happened in the political, what the latest political story was that, that had occurred over the past week. And I think Anthony was the only one who knew the, only, the major story about what had happened with um, uh, the Gillard's government and the challenge and all these things that went on. Most of you, I, I'm, I'm assuming, have heard one thing or another. My job today isn't to, uh, to discuss politics. My job today is to, uh, to explain God's word to you, but God, from time to time, brings up illustrations that I can't help but use. And this particular uh, example of what's happened uh, in the Labor uh, government um, with a challenge coming but not actually coming, with a house being divided, and, uh, and, and in the end, uh, things seeming settled, but actually not settled at all. There are bad opinion polls and fears of being wiped out at the next election and certain individuals in, a, in that political party have sought to find an alternative leader, thinking that they have no hope with the, the current one. Um, and that leader didn't chose not to challenge at all. Didn't think his time was right. Obviously the numbers weren't there. He wasn't gonna put his head in the chopping block. Some of them already have put their head on the chopping block. Whoever uh, challenged um, uh, are gone already, and there might be a few more to follow. Now, that, that sort of stuff happens not just in the Labor Party. It happens in the Liberal Party and every other party that, that, that exists. 
It, it happens from time to time when there's leadership uh, problems. But what went wrong over here? And, and if you look at it, um, you can say, oh, leadership wasn't any good or the, you know, people were being disloyal or whatever it is. But it boils down to expectations not being met. Simple as that. Expectations were not met. You know, people in, the, um, in, in that political party had certain expectations of their leader and, uh, and the results that they'd be able to achieve and, and those things weren't being achieved. Their expectations weren't being met. The leader had expectations of her, her party members, that they would be loyal. And some of them weren't loyal. Some of them were, were looking to, to do other things. There were expectations that weren't met from one way and the other. And expectations is... Uh, are, they're common to all of us. We all have expectations, don't we? Husbands and wives, you have expectations of each other, don't you? You have expectations, wives, you have expectations that your husband will take out the garbage, don't you? Or do you do it yourself? Parents have expectations of their children, don't they? Sometimes those expectations aren't realistic. They want their children to do more than what they, you know, their children are capable of or, or they have expectations that aren't high enough for their children and they allow their children to, to do whatever they want. If you're an employer, you have expectations of your employees, don't you? They have to work. And if they don't work, you won't be able to, to achieve what you need to achieve and your business is not going to go well. Whatever way you look at it, there are expectations that each of us have on, on a number of different levels and spheres. And what happened in the Labor Party over the past week is simply a manifestation of expectations not being met. So certain people had, felt they had to take it into their own hands to change certain things. Okay? So, expectations. What are my expectations of you as a pastor? I'd have expectations. The Bible tells me that as a pastor, I need to have certain expectations of you because if I have no expectations of you, then I'm not fulfilling my own, my own obligations. What expectations do I have of myself? The Bible tells me that I need to set a certain standard in this church. I need to set a certain um, uh, uh, level of holiness and example for you that you might have something to look at and say, you know, he's, he's setting me a good example. If I'm struggling in this area, I think I can, I can follow that example. I need to set an example in my preaching to you. You have an, ex, you have an expectation, don't you? That if, that if I preach, I preach from the Word of God. I don't go preaching. I don't open up on a Sunday morning. I open up the Hindu scriptures or the Quran or something else. Or I open up a newspaper and start preaching to you from that. Do, do you? Because if I started doing that, you'd realistically have, ex, you'd have questions about what I'm doing. So there are expectations we have of each other. Sometimes those expectations are good if they're based on the right things. Sometimes there are expectations that aren't good, that are based on my own standards, and I expect everyone to have my standards. Sometimes they can't be met. But the, the thing I want to look at this morning is, and the most important question for us in this church, is what does the Lord expect of us? You see, we can have a whole range of expectations. But really, the one who really matters, the one whose expectations um, are valid and real because he knows his children and he knows what we can achieve, he doesn't have unreal expectations, he only has genuine and right expectations, is the Lord himself. 
And today we'll look at four simple expectations that he has from us in this passage as his children. And if you look at this letter, Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, Church of Philippi, and it was the Church of Philippi was actually a good church. Paul had planted this church himself. And that was, it was now about 10 years later, and the church had been a blessing to both Paul and other people around them. But Paul finds himself a prisoner in Rome. He's being held as a prisoner for his belief. And the Philippians decide to be a blessing to Paul, so they send Epaphroditus to him with a gift to bless him. And that's a nice thing to do, isn't it? I mean, churches should be nice to, uh, to each other and also to, uh, to other, other Christians. But the church at Philippi has said, well, we'll send Epaphroditus, we'll send him down to Rome with a gift, and Epaphroditus can tell him about all that's happening at church. But while Paul was enjoying the gift and listening and, and being able to have fellowship with Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus was telling him about some of the disunity that was happening at church. There were some things at Philippi that, that weren't exactly right. It seems that there were some quarrelsome people over there. There were some people who, who had a problem with certain things. Their expectations weren't being met. So they decided to complain and murmur and do a whole heap of other things. And as, as they were complaining and murmuring, the church was in danger of splitting. You know, it's never right for God's people to be at odds with one another. Never right. It's never Christ-like for people to grumble and argue with one another. We're commanded in the scriptures to walk in unity and love and humbleness. In the second chapter, Paul deals with this divisiveness that was occurring in the church at Philippi and was coming into it. In verses 1 to 4, we see that Paul says you need to deny yourself. There's a plea for self-denial. And a plea to have a concern for other people rather than yourself. In verses 5 to 11, Paul then shows them what the perfect pattern they are to follow. And that perfect pattern is Christ himself. It was he who showed perfect humility. It was he who showed perfect, to be a, the, the perfect way to be a servant. And to have a, a, a care and an attention to other people rather than himself. Paul says Jesus is the pattern that we are to follow. And now, after that pattern, after that example, Paul says, okay, well, this is what then you are to follow. These are four simple things that I expect of you. God expects us to be as his son in this world. God expects us to live more and more like him every day. Now, it may not be right for me to impose my personal expectations upon all of you. You see, each of us is at a different phase. Each of us is at a different level in our walk with the Lord. So for me to impose my expectations upon you, when you may be a a younger Christian, you may have had other things that you're dealing with, may not be right. But God has the right to expect things of us. God has every right to demand things of us. God has made an incredible investment in our lives. I can't think of any greater investment than for God to have given his own son for me. That's an investment. So, with that investment in mind, I want to look at now 
what the Lord expects of us. Four simple things the Lord expects of us. Look at verse 12. Let's look at the first one. The Lord expects his children to obey. Verse 12 says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Notice here that Paul says the Philippians had always obeyed. So that's why they were a blessing to him. Whatever he had brought them from the Lord to them, they obeyed. They were willing, they were willing uh, participants in what was going on. They, they, they yearned for the truth and they yearned even more to live that truth. And that's an interesting thing is here, isn't it? He says, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Genuine obedience doesn't just occur when someone's in front of you, when they can actually see what you're doing. Genuine obedience occurs when there's no one else around, when there's no one to see what you're doing, when you're in the crowd and no one notices who you are. Genuine obedience occurs all the time. It relates to the integrity that we have in our lives. If I obey only when I'm in church or when there are other Christians around to see me, but then when I'm at work with, uh, with, the wor- with worldly people, with the unsaved, and I behave like them, am I, beha- am I obeying? Am I consistent in my life? The answer is no. God wants us to be consistent. And true obedience occurs when we are in church, when we are with our families, when we're at work. Wherever we find ourselves... True obedience requires us to be consistent. In addition, look how he starts off verse 12. He says, wherefore. That wherefore is therefore a purpose. That wherefore is actually referring to the the passage before. The actual, that that example that he'd given before. Look at verse 6. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. I won't necessarily read the rest of that, but in his incarnation, when, when the Son of God became a man, He was the perfect example of humility. Even though he had every right to be the boss. He could have ordered everyone around and he had the power to make people do what he wanted to, but yet he didn't. He was the perfect example of humility because an example of humility is when you have incredible power to do things, to influence, but you don't use it. The one who has no power, who has no standing, it's easy for them to be be humble. But the one who has incredible power, the one who has authority, if they are humble, it's harder for them to be humble. And our Lord came down from a throne in heaven, worshipped by all the angels, with incredible power at his disposal, yet he didn't use it. He could have subdued the whole world at that stage if he wanted to. Yet he acted as a lamb and not as a lion. Our perfect example of what it means to be humble. And if he can do it, the Bible says that we can actually do it. Because we are, we didn't come from the height and, and come down. We were already down the bottom. 
And the scripture tells us that we were all sinners. None of us are better than each other. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. In fact, we have nothing to show God. So I can't tell you that because I'm better than you, that, that, that I, I should be able to assert some sort of authority or some sort of a superiority over you. No, the Bible teaches that he who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of everyone. In Luke chapter 22, verse 42, Jesus says, Saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Do you know when he said that? He said that in the garden. That night he was betrayed. And it was the same night he spent with his disciples. And his disciples uh, were meant to be there with him in the, in the midst of that agony. Instead, they all fell asleep. Instead of praying with him, they, they pretty much deserted him. He was about to go through circumstances that you and I would never, ever come close to, to, um, to going through. There is nothing you and I will ever go through in our lives that will even come close to what Jesus was about to go through here. And you might say, well, other people have suffered. Other people are going through torture. Yes, other people didn't bear the sins of the whole world upon their shoulders. Other people did not know exactly what would be happening before it arrives. Leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus knew very well was what, exactly what was awaiting for him. His father told him. He would be betrayed. Listen to this. He would be betrayed. He would be abandoned by his own disciples, the men he'd spent three years with, to build them up and to teach them and to encourage them and to get them on the right track. They all would disappear. The men that were by his side would disappear. He'd be wrongly accused and hated for things that he didn't do. He'd be stripped of his dignity. He'd be beaten and whipped. A crown of thorns would be placed upon his head. He'd be nailed to a wooden cross and he'd bear the sins of the entire world upon his shoulders. You and I have absolutely no chance of even coming close to that sort of... Uh, of uh, tribulation in our lives. Can there be any more fearful expectation than anyone could possibly have? I don't think so. Yet here we see Jesus in the midst of all that he was about to walk through and he knew very well. He went into this thing with his eyes open, not with his eyes closed, not knowing, not knowing what was going on. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He chose to put his will beneath the will of his father. You see, as a person, he might have the, 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 the flesh, and he didn't have flesh as in sin, didn't want to go through the pain, didn't want to go through the, what, the agony that was about to transpire. His perfectly sinless nature did not want to be in, in, infected with the sin of the whole world. He'd never tasted sin before. But despite the absolute agony that was about to come upon him, Jesus chose to obey. And he chose to obey because his will was submitted to the Father. Let me ask you this morning. What mountains of God has God asked you to climb? Which mountain are you climbing at the moment? Where you're breaking your fingernails or you're 
or you're hurting yourself in the process of, uh, of achieving what God has asked you to do? Which mountain has God asked you to climb today? Is there a burden that you've been called to bear? Which burdens do you have? And if you have a burden, if you have a mountain that you're climbing, compare it to the mountain that Jesus climbed. Compare it to the burdens that he bore. And your burdens will be lighter. The mountain will seem a lot smaller when you compare it to what he climbed, compare it to what he bore. Is there any reason this morning for why you would not obey what God has asked of you? Is anything that God has asked of us this morning too much for us to bear? There isn't. All the reasons that we offer when we choose to ignore what the Lord has asked of us are not reasons at all, not valid reasons anyway. They're illegitimate excuses. And we know deep down in our hearts when we read something in God's Word and God's Word tells us to do something, to be faithful, to be caring and loving and patient and kind and all those things, when we fail to do those things, we are making an active choice not to do them. And we offer ourselves excuses for those to, hump, to, to quieten our, our conscience. And some of us have quietened our conscience for a long time. We offer the same excuses over and over again. And deep down we know they're not, they're not valid. But too often we accept our own illegitimate excuses. The truth of the matter is, when we offer an excuse for not obeying God, when we offer a reason for not following what God has asked us to do, what we are saying is, Lord, my will is more important than yours. God, my will needs to take authority over your will or precedence over your will. Think about that for a moment. When you, we fail to obey, what we are literally saying is, my will is more important than God's will. You know the answer to that. When we elevate our own will above that of our Father, we do him a disservice. We rob him of his glory. The Lord expects his children to obey, and in order to obey, his children must submit their wills to his. Jesus was a perfect example of it, and we've been called to follow in his footsteps. So the first expectation is that Lord, that we from the Lord is that we would obey and that we would submit our will to him. Second one, look what it says for the rest of that verse. It says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's an interesting verse and a half there. We are told in this verse that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out our own salvation. Let's just take that, let's take that phrase first, your own salvation. Isn't that a beautiful thing to say, I have a salvation which I own. It's mine. And each of you who've put your faith in Christ have your own salvation. It doesn't belong to someone else. It isn't a blanket thing that occurs. It's your own. The only reason that salvation is mine is because he gave it to me. I was given that salvation as a gift. But God planned it, purposed it, he pursued it, and he paid for it. And all I did was accept it. It became mine at a certain point in my life. 
When we put our faith in the finished work of our Lord and our Saviour, that salvation became something that we owned. It became something that changed my past, my present, and changed my future at the same time. It changed my whole identity as a person. I went from being an enemy of God to a child of God. But it says here we had to work it out. Work it out. How do you work out what you already have been given? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. Okay? It doesn't mean you have to work to be saved. It doesn't mean that. That would contradict the rest of Scripture, which tells us that salvation is a gift received by faith and given by grace. That is a, would be a complete contradiction to say, I have to work for my salvation. In fact, it is, as I've said, the one thing that makes Christ, true Christianity different to every other religion. Every other religion is working on their salvation, working on trying to earn their salvation. But Christianity says, I'm, going to give, I'm ready to give this thing to you as a gift. You just have to accept it. And that takes a whole lot of humbleness. You see, in order for us to accept a gift and say, there is nothing good in me to be able to, to earn my salvation, that, causes, that, that takes me to be, to be humble. There is nothing I can do when I, I, I stand before God's throne and God says, why, are you, why should I let you into my kingdom? Why should I let you into heaven? I can't go to God and say, you know, God, I used to give so much money to the poor. I gave so much of, a, of, a, of my, my time to help the weak. I did this and I did that and I did everything else. I can't stand there boasting in my own efforts because my own efforts were useless anyway. The only thing I can boast in is what was done for me at Calvary. It also doesn't mean that we have to work on an inward salvation. It doesn't mean that we have some sort of spark of divinity within us, as some other religions would teach. That there is some sort of a, a thing that God put in every person, okay, and all we've got to do is un, un, let it go, encourage it to grow. The Bible says there is nothing good in man. The only thing that's good in man before the Lord puts his spirit within him is sin, death and an expectation of hell. It does not mean that you have to work to stay saved either. Okay, so you don't have to work to be saved. You're not working to, to earn an inward salvation and it doesn't mean that you have to work to stay saved. What was won at, at Calvary for us cannot be re-won by us. Do you understand? The work that was done for us at Calvary, can't, we can't even come close to adding to anything that the Lord did for us. What deficiencies we have in our lives can't be made up by extra work. Just as your and mine good deeds couldn't make up for the sins that we committed before we were saved, our good deeds now can't make up for the, for the, for the sins and the problems that we have now. They can't make up for them. There's only one thing that can cover sin. That's the blood of Christ. So when people think they need to work to earn this or to maintain their salvation, that's a misnomer. It doesn't exist. And if works maintained our salvation, then how many works are needed? What type of works do I have to do to make up for something I've done wrong? 
It's the same dilemma that most religions have when discussing or putting a value on the works of men. What are they actually worth? Well, the scripture again tells us the men of worth are filthy rags before God. So, he says here that we are to work at our salvation in fear and trembling. He does not refer... This doesn't refer to us groveling before the Lord as a slave before his master. Rather, it's referring to the fear and trembling that ought to be ours because we know we're in a battle. And we know the, the, the sinfulness of our flesh which still hasn't been eradicated. We know that the time is short. And we know that whatever we do influences men, men and women around us. There are men and women dying daily who will go to an eternity in hell. And we have an incredible responsibility to be able to share that truth with them, to be lights in this world. That's where the fear comes into it, because we know God is a righteous judge, and they will be judged if they don't have Christ as their Lord and Saviour. There's a lot of fear and trembling there. The problem with ourselves is that we underestimate what God has asked us and expected us to do. We put so little value upon our own time and the time that we have, as I spoke of the night, that we allow the, the, the moments, the days, the weeks, the months to go by and we don't even realise where they've gone and we have nothing to show for them in the end. We are to completely submit our will to his. And when we are submitted to him, when we are willing to do the things he has called us to do, to be the lights he has called us to be, then you know something? You will not only be praising God for the life that you live and what you have, you'll be influencing others and bringing them along with you to Christ. What does it mean? What does it mean to work at our own salvation with fear and trembling? Well, it means simply this, to complete it, to carry on with it to its conclusion. That's why Paul says, persevere to the end. Work with it. You have such an incredible, incredible thing. Don't let it go to waste. Don't put it in a closet and keep it closed because there's no good for anyone else there. We are to be talking about what has happened in our lives. We are to move into the deeper things of God, not just stay on the shallow things of God. We are to move towards maturity in our lives because mature Christians are an example to the weaker Christians, are an example to people who are unsaved. A mature Christian is able to share their faith and to live consistently in front of this world. Romans 8.29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's it. We are destined. We've been called to be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's our goal in our lives. Far too many get in, but they never get on with the job. They get in, they get the freebie, but they never show any, any fruit or work. Let me give you an illustration. It's a bit like mining. God puts certain minerals in the earth, right? And they're in different areas. 
Okay, so in certain areas, of, uh, Australia is a bit of a lucky country. We have huge amounts of iron ore and, and different types of, uh, of minerals in the ground. But let's say that uh, God put, an, put a gold mine under your house. Now, let's say you're digging in your backyard one day and you dig up a nice clump of gold. And you think, hmm, interesting. Let me ask you a question. If you, by digging in your backyard, dug up a piece of gold, who would then stop digging? Would you stop digging? If you found that one piece of gold, would any of us stop digging? No. You'd be foolish to stop digging. Now's the time to start digging in earnest. That's the truth of the matter. So the truth is that there might be a whole lot more gold under there. So the goal is, with effort and expense, to dig deeper, to find the rest of that gold, if there is some under there. This is what being saved is like. God has put an incredible amount. When you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, God puts an incredible amount of potential then in you. The question is, will you be willing to dig? Are you willing to grow? Or will you just say, oh, look, I'm happy with this piece of gold. I'll put it there. This is, the, this is the, the true effort that's required in salvation. The salvation is already there. The question is, are you and I willing to put the effort in, to dig, to sweat, to actually expend what we have, to actually find the rest of what's there? The rest of the potential that God has called me to. You see, before I was saved, I had no potential. But now God has put his Holy Spirit in my life. And he's called me his child. And God says, you know something? You've still got that flesh you've got to deal with. Get rid of it. Eradicate it. Kill it off every day. But you know something? I want you to be revealed more and more into the image of my son. There's a huge amount of gold there to be discovered. We underestimate what God has put into our hearts. So that's what it means to work out your salvation. Work in it. Make sure you complete it. Finish it off. Work in it every day and do it diligently. Use God's word to be that shovel to reveal more and more of what's there. God has not called us to a life of defeat and misery. He's called us to a life of progress and joy and victory. Our responsibility is to be what he has saved us to be. And look at Philippians chapter 2 verse 13. It says there, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Before we were saved, God the Spirit was working on us. You know, God was, was trying to, to, to break through the barrier that we have as an individual and as, as a proud and sinful and rebellious person. And God was working on the, on the outside of us. But you know something? The Bible says that now we're saved. God is working from the inside out. The Holy Spirit's living in there. And now he's actually conforming us. He's changing us from the inside on a day-to-day basis. The Holy Spirit gives us understanding of how to do God's will. Of, how, of what God's will is and the desire to actually do it. This is how a Christian life operates. God reveals his will to us through his word, by his spirit, and we follow him in obedience. The Christian is not just a passive involvement. The Christian shouldn't just be sitting back in a chair and waiting for God to do all the work. 
God has called us to participate in this work. And you know that where that work starts? In your own life first. The amazing thing I find in this particular verse is that God puts the desire in me. It's God that creates the desire within me to want to do good. Without God's desire, without the desire that God put there, without that, that character that he placed within me, I wouldn't want to do that. Isn't that an amazing thing? That God is influencing our desires from the inside. I find that amazing. And God not only puts the desire in us, the Bible says that God equips us to do his work. He enables us to do his work. Whichever way you look at it, God puts the desire, he puts the enabling, but you know what? There has to be effort. You have to put the effort in to work and to grow. Any work requires effort and requires a use of energy. So, third point. The Lord expects his children to walk worthy of their calling. Like look at verse 14 and 15. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless as sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We are to carry out the will of God. We are to, to carry out the desires that God has put within us and the enabling that he has given us without murmuring. Plenty of things you can murmur about. Plenty of things. You know something? If I look for, for things to complain about, you reckon I could find some? Won't take very long. In fact, you could probably, if you wanted to find things to complain about, you could probably write up a, a whole wall of, of, of things you can complain about. And what good is it going to do you? It's not going to do anything. That word murmuring is, means like a, a secret displeasure in the heart, not publicly revealed. Murmuring. So in other words, you're, you're, you're mumbling about something. There's something going on, like in the, the, the Labor Party. There are murmurings going on in the background with secret deals and things going on, but they weren't publicly announcing it until Simon Crean came along, announced it. That's what, that's what murmuring is. But that's what happened to the Israelites. That's, what, that's why the Israelites were judged. Look at, uh, well, don't worry, don't worry about turning there, but Numbers 11, chapter, uh, verse 1 says, And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. They were complaining. They were complaining after they got saved out of Egypt. And it says here that we are to, to, to accept God's grace and accept the wonderful provisions that he's given us without complaining and without, he says here, disputing. Disputing means arguing, okay, to, to create an argument about something. When the Lord once again saved Israel from Egypt and provided them with food in a desert where there was no, there was no food, and they were simply asked to go from there into the promised land and they were floating around for 40 years. Why? Because of their whinging, complaining, murmuring, disputing and everything else that was going on. They fell into sin and everything else. But look at, have a look at this. God had saved Israel from Egypt with all these incredible miracles that he did. Mind you, they walked through a sea with walls of water on each side of them. You'd think that that would, that would be an image that would stuck, stuck in your mind. But look at this. Look, look at their... 
look at their uh, response to the Lord when he starts feeding him with manna. Okay? They said in verse five, Numbers chapter 11, verse 5, We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely. The cucumbers, the melons, and the leeks. Oh, and the onions and the garlic. They were not Italians there, they are all Jews. And then it says in verse 6, But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. You know something? That's a perfect example of a complete whinge. They were saved. They were alive. They were free. God had done incredible things for them and they were headed to the promised land. But on the way they had to complain. They had to whinge. It's murmuring and disputing that kept them out of Israel for about 40 years. When the Lord speaks, he wants us to obey his voice. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, it says, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Rebellion and stubbornness. This is exactly what they were displaying in, in, the, um, in the wilderness there. We aren't called to rebellion and stubbornness. We aren't called to be rebellious and stubborn people. You know, God freed us from that and actually saved us from that. We are now to be humble, loving, patient, kind. All those things that the Bible says that true love is all about. And this is, this little community over here, we call Faith Baptist Church, is the first place you learn to do that. It's the first place. You learn to exhibit and practice those things. And you know something? God will put people in your way to make you become patient. You struggle to be patient? You know what God's going to do? He's going to put people in your way that's going to force you to be patient. Either you'll crack or either you'll be patient. And you're going to learn patience. God's way. And he says here that we are to walk blameless in this world, free from fault or defect. We are to be harmless, which means unmixed. It carries the idea of sincerity, no pretense. There is no hypocrisy in the child of God. The way they live in church is the way they live at home and the way they, they live at work. Without rebuke, it says. In other words, no reason for someone to actually find something against you. The bottom line is that people should be able to look at your life and mine and even if they disagree with us, even if they say, I don't believe what you're saying, they shouldn't be able to point a finger at us. That's what our lives should be like. Because the Bible says that the world is crooked. The world is perverse. It means that the road they're taking is always twisted and moving and changing. And it is. The world is always changing the way it's, the way it's going. It's never in a, in a direct path because it doesn't know where it's going. And they'll use any particular reason or angle to justify their way of getting to a particular goal. But the Bible says that we had to walk in straight lines. In fact, one straight line. God's line. 
We are to walk in one direction, together, supporting one another. Because that particular road he's called us to walk down is not as nice as this carpet area over here. It's not nice and flat. It might not look as nice as this either. In fact, the road that God has called us to, uh, to walk down has a number of obstacles in it. There's a number of people on the sides who are going to be taking pot shots at us as we go down that road. And if we aren't walking circumspectly, we are going to be injured and we're going to cause others to be injured as well. And finally, God expects his children to be witnesses. Look at verse 16. Holding forth the word of life that I might rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither laboured in vain. The Christian has been called to be a witness in this world, a light in this world, because the world is crooked, perverse and full of darkness. We have been called to be different to the people around us. So different they see that difference, that it makes a difference. And it causes them to question, what is it with those people over there? We are called to be lighthouses. We are called to be reflectors. There are so many examples I can give you about what God has called us to be in terms of lights. But we are called to be living epistles to the people of this, of this nation. You know, Paul says to the, um, to the Corinthians, he goes, Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. You like that? You're our epistles. In other words... We shared the gospel with you and you're like a living epistle. You're like a living the word of God. And other people are able to read you. Do you know there are some people that would never read the word of God other than, the, than what they see in us? Are you going to be different enough to actually challenge them in their belief? To cause them to question what they do and why they do it? We are to hold forth the word of life. Hold forth means to present and to offer. It means that where we have the opportunity, God calls us to share that word. As difficult as it may be sometimes, as challenging as it is, God has enabled us to share his word and he calls for us to do it. We are to take the faith that's been given to us and to share it with others. And never say to yourself, that you have nothing to offer. That your life isn't good enough for you to share the truth. I'll, tell you, I'll give you some interesting examples over here. The Apostle Peter wasn't the first Pope. But he was a great Christian. It was Andrew that shared the truth with Peter. That brought Peter in. D.L. Moody was a great Christian. But it was ignited by a little match named Mr. Kimbrell, who no one knows much about, or no one hears much about. Spurgeon was a great Christian. It was ignited by an unknown layman. There are, there are so many things you find in life where people of greatness in terms of Christianity... Had, had, had been given the gospel by someone who we think is insignificant. But in God's kingdom, they're not. So never underestimate what you can do. Never underestimate 
what the Lord can do with your life if you will just yield to him. Some people and some churches have adopted the notion that Christian life is one that makes no demands, doesn't expect anything from, from its followers. Nothing could be further from the truth. God saved you, he saved me, and he has expectations of us now. He's invested a whole lot within our lives and he wants us to show fruit. The Lord expects obedience. He expects us to work. He expects us to walk. And he expects us to witness. How well are you meeting the expectations of God in your life this morning? When you, when you look at those four things in your life, grade yourself. And if you don't grade well, make a commitment to make a change. Make a commitment to do the best you possibly can in those four areas. And if you grade yourself high, make sure you're grading yourself properly. And if you're right with your assessment of yourself, there's always room for improvement, isn't there? So how well are you meeting God's expectations in your life today? Please, take an honest look at yourself. Look at where you're going. Look at what you're doing. Look at how much effort you're putting in. You know, there's not a single person here today who has come to Christ for salvation who can say, he didn't meet my expectations. Can any of us say that? We came to Christ with an expectation of being saved, of being loved, of being given grace and mercy and truth. Has Jesus let any of us down? No, not in the least. If he hasn't let us down, surely we can do our best to fulfill his expectations. God bless you. Thank you.